your spirit into our lives with the power of a mighty wind, and by the flame of your wisdom, open the horizon of our minds, loosen our tongues to sing your praise in words beyond the power of speech. Without your spirit, we can then raise our voices in words of peace, or announce the truth that Jesus is Lord. Lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Mercy. Pray for us. St. Joseph. Right. 
foul mouth. Poker allowed every kind of immorality to go on inside and outside the soldier's camp. He always allowed a small army of gamblers and prostitutes and busters to follow the Union Army wherever it went. Hooker was a hellraiser and a thoroughly godless man, and everybody knew it. The night before the Battle of Chancellorsville, General Hooker gathered his generals together for a war council. And at that meeting, he bragged about what he was going to do to his enemies. General Lee and he said he would show them no mercy. He said that God had mercy on them because I don't have none. Then he made a statement that shocked them all. He raised a hand, pointed a finger toward heaven. He said, Almighty God could not stop me from winning the victory tomorrow. Later that night, one of his generals, General Hancock, the Packers tent, wrote a letter to his wife and said, How could we ever hope to whip under a commander who would dare to utter such blasphemy? General Hooker planned to attack the Confederates, but the next day he got the surprise of his life because General Lee attacked him. Fighting Joe Hooker was taken totally by surprise, caught completely off guard. In all the shock and confusion of battle, the officers on his staff said that a kind of paralysis came over him. Hooker became almost paralyzed with fear and indecision. A number of hours went by before Hooker ever came out of his headquarters to direct the battle, but by that time it was too late. The rebels had pulled off one of the most spectacular flanking movements in all of military history. They gave the Federal Army a bloody deal. For the North, Chancellorsville was a humiliating defeat. President Abraham Lincoln sacked Joseph Hooker, and Hooker fell into disgrace. He had lived ashamed of that defeat and that blasphemy for the rest of his life. His very name, his name itself became disgraced because after Chancellorsville, his name was forever associated with the infamous profession of the immoral liberty allowed the father's king. You see, this is what happens to the crowd in the area. You know, the punishment for pride is somehow built into the order of God's creation. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humble. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, do you understand why it is that pride is such a danger to the life and soul? Why is it that pride is the most deadly of the seven capital sins? Pride was the sin of Lucifer and the fallen angels who said, I will not serve. Pride was the sin of Adam and Eve wanted to be like God and decide for themselves what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is good, what is evil, without reference to God. This is the essence of sin. First comes pride, then comes disobedience. Sin brings pain, suffering, misery, and death in the world. Bible calls pride the reservoir of all sin. In the book of Proverbs it says, when pride comes, disgrace comes, but with a humble there is wisdom. It says, pride goes before the fall. God will repay the full of those back to the pride. What is pride? 
term is hubris. Pride is that exaggerated love of self that inclines us to see ourselves as being superior, better than others. Pride is that insidious desire for self-exaltation that leads us to seek our own honor and glory apart from the honor and glory of God. Pride, the prideful person, sees the self as the measure of all things, the measure of all truth, the measure of all reality, the standard of all morality. Pride sets the self in opposition to God's wisdom and will. Pride sets up the self as the judge over God's word and God's law, the judge over everything and everybody. Pride always seeks to be the center of attention. Pride has always got to have its own way. Pride will always try to control, dominate, and manipulate others and situations around them. When we examine our consciences and look back at our past lives, Invariably, we see that so many of our worst moments, worst humiliations, bad behaviors, biggest blunders, embarrassing falls, broken relationships, professional failures, life's most bitter regrets and memories can be traced back to our own foolish, foolish pride. Church. 
said, humility is truth. Humility is truth. What truth? It's the truth about us, the truth about ourselves. That is to say, humility is the moral virtue by which we have a correct opinion of ourselves and see ourselves as God sees us. It is a true recognition of what we are and what we are worth in the eyes of God and in St. Marcus. Humility is the virtue that restrains us, holds us back in our unruly desire for personal glory, and it helps us recognize the fact that there is an infinite distinction between the creature and the created word God, without whom we are nothing and can do nothing. With Jesus Christ as our model, we can say that humility is a self-emptying, an emptying of self that allows God to work in us with his grace. Now, the word humility comes from the Latin word humus, humus, word that means earth, soil, dust, dirt. The word humility reminds us of God's word to us in the book of Genesis. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Some of the newer translations say, remember that you are dirt, and to dirt you shall return. You know, on Ash Wednesday, of course, you come to Mass and receive the ashes on your forehead and the sign of the cross. But every time Ash Wednesday rolls around, we've always got to laugh because this never seems to fail. You will see people at Mass on Ash Wednesday who no one has seen in church for months. People haven't darkened the church door all year long, and they rush in there Ash Wednesday morning, get their free ashes, get the little sign of the cross on their foreheads, so they can rush out again and look holy for the rest of the day. Like people see them and say, Oh, oh, he's got the black spot. He must really be holy, must be a really devout Catholic. It's kind of like when you receive the ashes on your forehead, the church is saying, um, oh, you're so holy, you're so holy, you're so holy. No, that's not what the church is saying. The church is saying, this is what you're going to look like, this is what you're going to look like, this is what you're going to look like. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We're all going to die. It's supposed to fill us with a sense of our mortality, a sense of humility. We've come from God, we're going back to God. Humility reminds us that every good thing we have, every good gift we enjoy, every grace and blessing, every talent we can use comes from God and not from within ourselves. Now it's important to understand what humility is not. The true humility should not be confused with timidity or mediocrity or lack of initiative, or self-loathing, defeatism, pessimism, for all the True humility does not deny the real gifts and talents and abilities God has given us. It just means we don't claim those gifts as our own, but as truly coming from God, knowing that God wants and expects 
and demands that we use those good gifts with right intention, with the help of His grace, to build up His mystical body of the church on earth for His greater honor and glory and for the salvation of souls. No excuses. Now, in my years of priesthood, I've known people who have a false conception of humility. People who claim humility as a convenient excuse to do little or nothing for the church or for anybody else. I've known people like this. People never fail to bury their God-given talents in the ground in one way or another. People have got plenty of time and talent, but they won't use it. You try to get them involved in some kind of an apostolic work or a charitable cause or a ministry of service, and uh, you, you'll hear something like this. I've heard this before, right? Oh, Father, who am I? <laughs> I'm nobody. What can I do? I'll never amount to anything. Little old me, good for nothing. You know, I'd like to do more, but I'm just, I'm so unworthy. I just can't. I could never. Oh, no. Not me. Don't come to me. Go to the other guy. Go to the other gal. Leave me alone. Don't bother me. I don't want to be bothered is what they're really saying. You see, this is a bubble-brained, wrong-headed notion of what it means to serve God in humility. You see, the virtue of humility and trust in God go hand in hand. You're going to find, especially the young people here, that many times in your life, many times God is going to call on you to do things that are far, far beyond your natural abilities. The grace of God that helps you to do all those things you cannot hope to do by human strength alone. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, being humble does not mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking less about yourself. So you can think more about God, more about others. God working through you. You're going to be more daring when you know that God has got your back. You're going to accomplish far more. The humble accomplish far more than do the proud and self-sufficient. Now, this is going to be understood. To be a little soul, a humble soul in God's sight, does not mean the Christian is called to be some kind of a doormat or a pushover or a wimp in serious matters. Especially when it comes to standing up for the truth, defending the faith, defending your family. If I were to ask you to give me a good working definition of love in a truly Christian sense, would you have one? Would you be able to articulate one? My favorite working definition of love is one that comes from a great theologian, St. Thomas Aquinas. Very simple. I'm paraphrasing here. St. Thomas used to say, love means wanting what is truly best for the people that you love. Wanting what is truly best for your neighbor. So what could be better than God? What could be better than heaven? Perfect eternal happiness in God's heavenly kingdom. And that's why the first most essential thing God wants thousands to do for each other and for their kids is to help them get to heaven. Pray for each other. That's what it's all about because the greatest love of all is concern 
for your loved one's eternal salvation. Friends, it is not mercy to affirm people in their sins or just keep your mouth shut in the face when you know is wrong. That's not humility. That's not charity. It's cowardice. Look at the lives of the saints. The saints were great in humility, but at the same time, they were courageous, tenacious, audacious defenders of truth and opponents of evil. A great example for our age, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa of Calcutta was going to be canonized on September the 4th. One time, Mother Teresa was invited to go to Russia, to Moscow to receive an award for her humanitarian work in the old Soviet communist government. And Mother reluctantly accepted the invitation, not because she was seeking human praise or worldly honors, but because she had tried for years to open a house of her missionaries of charity in Russia. She could never do it. The communists would never give permission. So Mother thought, well, maybe this is the opportunity we were looking for. Maybe the Holy Spirit's opening a door for us here. She turned out how to be right. So mother went to Moscow and uh, Soviets held this lavish award ceremony and they invited world news organizations and mother gave a speech. And uh, during her speech, Mother Teresa noticed that the communist translator on the other side of the stage was deliberately mistranslating her words and turning her speech into a diatribe against the United States. Western capitalism and imperialism and warmongering all life. So, Mother Teresa stopped and interrupted her speech in front of everyone. She walked across the stage, stood in front of the interpreter, shook a finger in his face, and said, Stop. Stop. That is not what I said, and you know it. She said, Either you will translate my words correctly. Or I will walk out of here right now, all this will be over. We got the message. She went back across the stage and finished her speech. When it was over, one of the nuns with her said, Mother, how did you know? How did you know what he was saying? You don't speak Russian. Mother said, No, no, I do not speak Russian, but the Holy Spirit does. There was a woman filled with the Holy Spirit and power. Now we can say that the greatest obstacle to true Christian discipleship is pride. I think most of us have to struggle every day with the movements of pride within ourselves. And the great danger of it is so often it can be subtle and subconscious. And if you are not constantly on your guard, constantly on the lookout for it, ever so vigilant, the devil will use it to trip you up. Why is pride so dangerous? Is because we all want to be somebody. Everybody wants to be somebody. Father Campbell and I were talking this afternoon about a priest, one of our contemporaries in priesthood, was a classmate of mine in seminary. And uh, he is one of the most gifted, talented men that I've ever known. Certainly, 
of the greatest speakers that I've ever heard. Maybe the best preacher of his day. But his downfall was pride. It got to the point where he actually interiorized this celebrity status in the church, wherever he went. He surrounded himself with an entourage of lay people. He was just full of himself. He was just full of self-importance. It got to the point where it was hard for anybody to work with him anymore. And finally, in the end, he fell. And he caught skin. Because pride goeth before the fall. That's the reality of pride. We all want to be somebody, see? We all want to accept. We all want to stand out and about. We want the respect and admiration of others. We want to make our mark in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, God does call us to do the best we can with the good gifts He has given to us. As long as we remember who is in charge, whose will has got to be done every step of the way. In a certain sense, we can say that all of us are called to greatness in life. We're called to be humble, but at the same time, we are called to be great. Great, that is, in the sight of Almighty God. Think of the life of our blessed mother, the most humble of all God's creatures. Think of her words in the Gospel of St. Luke, her Magnificat. Mary said, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. What did our lady do? She always acknowledged the great things God had done for her. She did not try to deny them. She didn't try to hide them. But she was always giving God the praise, always giving God the glory, always threatening everything back to God. You see, God made something great happen to Mary. The greatest event in the history of the world, the incarnation, took place within her virginal womb. Mary's virginal womb became like the bridal chamber where heaven and earth, divinity and humanity were joined together, wedded in a kind of mystical marriage. That is something that God intends to be known and understood and honored. Mary's humility, her perfect obedience to God's will, her eternal yes to God, her fiat, reversed the disobedience of Eve and set in motion the events that would make the Paschal mystery a reality. That is something God intends to be known and understood and honored. Mary is the masterpiece of God's creation. She is the masterpiece of God's grace on earth. The masterpiece of God's glory in heaven. It is interesting to take note of the fact that the high point, the crowning glory in all of God's creation, is a woman. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon on her feet, and on her head, the crown of twelve stars, the queen of heaven, the great woman of revelation. Do you ever think about this? I'm sure that many times you've seen 
artistic representations by name, statues, paintings, icons, holy cards, all the like. And our lady is shown standing on top of a round object, on top of a sphere, or on top of a presence, like the image of our lady in Guadalupe. Those objects represent the moon. Why does the Bible give us the moon as the symbol for Mary? It's very simple. It is because the moon is not the source of the light. You see, the moon gives no light of its own. The moon only reflects the light. The moon always reflects the light of the sun. That's exactly what Mary does. Mary is not the light. Mary always reflects the light of her divine son, Jesus Christ, the true light of the world. She is the Immaculate Conception. You know, there's nothing so hard to understand about the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. I think I can set it out so the most fundamental fundamentalists can get it. If you just think of it like this, God created his own mother, did he not? If you could create your own mother, how would you make it? I know how I would make my mother. All beautiful, all holy, all pure, all immaculate. That's exactly what God did. We honor Mary, the humble and of the Lord, little in her own estimation, but incredibly great in the sight of Almighty God. You see, friends, greatness is not what greatness is in the sight of the world. We know all the things that this world holds in high esteem. Money, wealth, success, status, power, pleasure, fame, physical beauty, athletic prowess. All those things that have no value whatsoever in the sight of God for eternity. You know, what you are, what you truly are, is what you are in the sight of Almighty God. Nothing more, nothing less. You know what greatness is in the sight of Almighty God? Greatness is holiness. Holiness, we say, is the alignment of the human will with the will of Almighty God. It is the perfect fulfillment of God's will in your life, no matter who you are, or where you are, or what you are. That is how even the most little, hidden, humble, unknown soul can be great in the sight of heaven. That's what makes a saint. Now, on those sad occasions, those rare occasions, when I have had to refuse someone absolution in the confessional, it is usually for the same reasons. Usually it is because that person is absolutely convinced of his or her own goodness, his or her own righteousness, while at the same time holding on to some grave sin with no firm purpose of amendment. No intention of changing their ways. Friends, the virtue of humility demands that all of us recognize that we are sinners in need of God's mercy. All of us are sinners in need of God's mercy. Pope Francis compares the church to a battlefield hospital. 
the church was saying is not so much a museum for saints as it is a hospital for sinners. All of us are sinners in need of his mercy, right? Think about this. You gotta make this distinction, right? God is infinitely loving and God is infinitely merciful. But the two are not always the same. They differ only in this. God's love is unconditional. But God's mercy is not unconditional. The reception of God's mercy is dependent, conditioned upon our willingness to repent and turn away from sin. There could be no forgiveness of sins without true contrition, sorrow for sin. Now, you know, both facts of history and your own experience will tell you the ultimate case that very important people, DIVs, can be humble, while ordinary joys can be full of pride and arrogance. Great shots can be humble, little shots can be proud. Another great example of humility for our time, Pope St. John Paul II. In the 26 years of his pontificate, Pope John Paul II traveled around the world 13 times and visited 134 different countries, most of which were seeking a pope for the first time. You remember what St. John Paul II used to do when he would get off the plane in another country? He'd walk down the steps of the plane, get down on his hands and knees on the tarmac and kiss the ground as an expression of affection and respect for the people of that land. It said that Pope John Paul II went to confession every day or every other day when the opportunity would arise. On Holy Thursday, presiding at the Mass of the Lord's Supper, carrying out the ceremony of washing the feet, not only would St. John Paul wash the feet of the subjects, he would also kiss the feet. <laughs> That's a good one. It is said that President Abraham Lincoln was a very humble man. One time during the Civil War, President Lincoln was visiting the wounded in the hospital in Washington, D.C., and he was walking through one of those big old hospital doors that would swing both ways, and there was a big, early young man rushing through the same door at the same time, walking the opposite way, and he slammed into President Lincoln. He knocked President Lincoln backward, knocked him down on the floor. Here is this big and angry young man standing over the President of the United States while the President's bodyguard rushed forward. He's looking down at the President, pointing down and yelling at him. Why don't you look where you're going, you big, long, lanky, string bean? President Lincoln calmly stood up, brushed himself off and said, young man, what is troubling you on the inside? When I was a young army officer, I was privileged to be General Omar Bradley. General Omar Bradley was a five-star general at the time, highest-ranking man in the American military. It's a legendary figure of World War II. It's kind of a legend in his own time. But still, General Bradley was a very humble man. Boys and gentlemen, boys and kind men. Never looked down on any GI. One time during World War II, General Bradley would lead American troops in combat in Sicily, and he was up in the front while the hottest action was taking place and the Germans were shelling our guys all over the place, and artillery rounds were bursting all around them, so General Bradley had to run and take cover. 
So he jumped into a ditch by the side of the road. And then a minute later, a private, a GI, came running over and jumped into the ditch next to him, yelled over to him, who is the idiot in charge of this operation? <laughs> General Bradley had his head down under his helmet and yelled back to him, wherever he is, they ought to hang him. <laughs> Pride, like we really, is the great destroyer of human relationships, the great destroyer of marriage and family life, especially among those spouses who cannot find it within themselves to say the simple words, I'm sorry. Or I forgive you. Or I love you. The absence of those eight little words have been the destruction of millions, countless millions of marriages through the ages. You know, when it comes to the breaking up of marriage and family, the devil's strategy has never changed. It's very simple. It's always divide and conquer. Devil is always trying to drive the wedge of division between spouses and family members. And pride is the open portal through which he enters in to destroy marriage and family. Pride. The devil counts on pride. He plays on pride. And if he can't find the big things get husbands and wives stirred up against each other. Oh, he will use the little things, trivial things, petty things. He will do whatever it takes to take down marriage and take down a family. Pride is the evil tree that bears rotten fruits in the form of selfishness, egotism, lack of forgiveness, lack of compassion. <laughs> Breakdown of interpersonal communication, envy, rivalry, suspicion, rash judgment, rudeness, denial of sin, you name it. I remember one time hearing this poor silly woman came on TV telling her life story and tales of woe. And she was saying, I dated this guy for several years, and a lot of the time he treated me like dirt. And then, after we were married, after they were married, guess what? Things got worse. The guy treated her like dirt for all those years and she married him? How crazy can you get? Um, do you think that story is far-fetched? If you do, think back about a year or so. Think of the NFL football star of the Baltimore Ravens, Ray Rice. Ray Rice was caught on an elevator security camera punching out his fiance. Knocked around cold. On the news, they replayed that video over and over and over again, hundreds of times. Remember what happened after that? His fiance, when he knocked out cold, she married. Yes. Uh huh. There you go. Do you want to know a surefire way to break your life? Do you, young people, want to be miserable? If you do, marry someone filled with pride and arrogance. That will do it. There's an old saying a man who is in love with himself will have no rivals. 
Now here's a question for you. How can you detect, how can you discern the movements of mind within yourself? I've got a little diagnostic test for you here. All right, let me ask you these questions. Number one, in your heart of hearts, do you see yourself as being better than others? Because of who you are, what you have, or what you know. When you are in conversation with others, you always seem to call the subject back to yourself. You always seem to talk about yourself, your own interests, your own affairs. Is it all about you all the time? Are you overly concerned about what other people think of you? Are you always trying to make yourself look good? Build yourself up on the side of others? Are you always ready to stretch the truth lie, that is, if that's what it takes to do it? Are you one of those people who has always got to be right and can't stand to be contradicted? Do you stick like glue to your own opinions even when they are definitively proven to be wrong? Do you find it easy to dissent from the teaching of the church in matters of faith and morals? Do you think that you know better than the Holy Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, the whole company of the saints, the whole church? Are you ready to bet, to gamble the salvation of your immortal soul on that? That's a sucker's bet. That's the worst crime of all. Are you someone who is ultra-sensitive to criticism? can't accept even a mild fraternal correction for your own good. In charity? How about this one? Do you find it easy to gossip? Do you take pleasure in tearing down others? Do you take satisfaction in hearing somebody's good name being torn apart? Do you jump on every chance to point out the faults and the mistakes of others? Never miss a chance to criticize? Are you overly concerned or even obsessed with your physical appearance? Are you always worried about your looks? How much money do you spend, for example, on clothes, shoes, your hair, cosmetics and all that? Do you find it hard to forgive even the slightest offense? When something hurts you, you always feel a need to get even and strike back, ready to hold a grudge. Mother Teresa used to say, to forgive takes love, but to forget takes humility. I heard it said, holding a grudge is kind of like drinking poison and expecting the person you're angry with to die. Doesn't work very well, does it? Lack of forgiveness is inherently self-destructive. It will eat you up on the inside. It will destroy the peace of your soul. God wants it out of your life. Lack of forgiveness, we can say, is kind of like the sulfuric acid of the soul. What does sulfuric acid do? It burns and it disfigures everything it is splashed upon 
and eventually it eats away. It eats up the container that holds it. That's what it does to your soul. It is it true to say that a lot of what you do tends to be done for the sake of appearances? You always feel a need to be noticed. Are you always motivated by some desire for the praise of others, like the Pharisees of old, who perform all their good works to be seen and, and prefer the praise of men to the glory of God? You know, the Holy Spirit wants no part of that. Does a lot of this sound familiar? These are the movements of pride. Now, there is a positive sense in which we can use the term pride, for example, uh, in being conscientious, dependent, responsible of doing things right, doing things well, like, for example, taking pride in your neighborhood, pride in your community, pride in your work, pride in your family. That's not what I'm talking about here. Here, I am talking about the capital fault of pride. In order to self-love, conceit, and all that. But here's the last question. Have we become humble? How do we get the virtue of humility? First thing we do, pray for it. Pray for it. The humble soul prays all the time in radical dependence on God. Remember that ordinarily, ordinarily, God humbles us through humiliations. And little humiliations seem to come our way all the time. Okay, we should accept them as being permitted by God allowed by God for our sanctification. Here's another thing. Want to be humble? Have a sense of humor. Don't take yourself so seriously. Be a joyful person. The humble soul is at peace in the hands of God. St. Teresa of Avalese and say, God save us from sad-faced saints. Finally, Imitate one who's always the perfect model of humility, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus who said, There's a God of the Spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus, who humbled himself to share in our humanity, Jesus, who taught his disciples to take the lowest place, wash the feet of the apostles, came to serve and not be served. Jesus who said, Come and learn of me, for I am meek and humble heart. Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the King of kings and Lord of lords, allowed himself to be spat upon, abandoned, betrayed, denied, scourged, mocked, and crucified for love of us and for our salvation, gave himself up to a shameful public death, and that, my brothers and sisters, is the humility of God.
And um, I, I put together this new series because I'm finding wherever I go, there's so many Catholics who still know nothing about the message of divine mercy our Lord had given to the world through St. Faustina. And a lot of our people don't bother to read. Now, many people don't have the time to read the diary of St. Faustina. It's 640 pages long. So what I did was to cut out the most important passages from the diary of St. Faustina and put them in some kind of topical and chronological order. And then I did a little commentary and recitation on the six notebooks of St. Faustina. Who am I to try to be the voice of Jesus Christ? Huh? My friend Jennifer Rosales does the voice of St. Faustina, and so it's like a crash course on the divine mercy. The proceeds for the sale of these CD sets go for the education of our seminary, and so it's, it's for a good cause. Thank you for coming.
by your kingdom, we ask this through Christ our Lord. Blessed be His most precious blood. Blessed be Jesus, the most holy sacrament of the altar. 